When was the last time you shook hands, gave a high five, or a hug? Such in-person interactions build bonds with our fellow humans and aren't possible during a global pandemic. As we self-isolate for each other, we may feel alone. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. And I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, we'll discuss Alone Together, Stories from a Pandemic. Like the rest of the world, we have spent several months in our own bubbles, sticking close to home, mostly, and trying to make sense of what the future has in store. While also juggling e-learning with our kids, endless Zoom meetings, and trying to find the space for creativity all in the comfort of our living rooms, at our kitchen tables, and in our basements. Because our work is about the human condition and connection, and we believe that is done best face-to-face, we had to rethink how we operate and how to best get writers and storytellers together. Of course, Zoom is always an option, but who doesn't have Zoom fatigue these days? And there's old-fashioned phone calls, so let's not forget that Alexander Graham Bell's original invention still plays an important role. But ultimately, we wanted to hear from you, our listeners, and provide a space to talk about your hopes and fears and dreams, but mostly what life has been like for you during this time of social isolation and how community has or has not been created. So we did a call out and said whether you are on the front lines at a grocery store, in the ER, lost your job, or hunkered down at home, we want you to connect with someone via Zoom or by phone and talk about life during the pandemic. Then share those stories with us, and we'll share them with other listeners by way of this show. We also set up a call-in line where folks could leave messages to tell us whatever was on their minds. Today's episode is about being alone together in stories from a pandemic, but it's also about reconnecting, slowing down, appreciation, empathy, understanding, and restarting. There's speculation about what people 50 years from now will call this time. One of the names I like best is The Great Reset. And if you find yourself in that place, we hope some of the stories and call-ins we share today help you feel a little less alone in whatever way a reset looks like for you. One of the first stories we received was from the island of Jamaica. Imagine going away on a mission trip and then being sheltered in place for five months. That was the reality for Megan Hamilton. But what she saw from the convent was more than a tropical paradise— During her time of isolation, she began to understand the stark differences between U.S. privilege and Jamaican unrest. I write to you underneath the shade of a mango tree, listening for the call of the parrots that have seemed particularly abundant since Jamaica entered a lockdown period, and my suburb of Kingston grew very still. I'm aware of the suffering beyond the gates of the convent grounds, and it moves me. I know I'm privileged, and I help as I can by preparing bags of food, visiting the elderly sisters with dementia, taking on small projects around the convent. Still, this problem is bigger than me. I cannot wrest the virus from this island, no matter how much strength my 64-year-old body holds within. At times, these realities tap a vein of frustration, and I feel indignant with the universe that After over a year of researching volunteer programs, applying and fundraising, I'm stuck in this convent and have little way of getting to know anyone outside. The visits to schools, to homes for people with disabilities, and to the local hospice all stopped in March. Jamaica is a gift I had only begun to open for a few weeks before it was snatched from my hands. 
The frustration is real and I honor it. But most days I open my hands, release what I cannot control and feel overwhelmed, not with frustration, but with gratitude. This convent is an oasis and the sisters who graciously opened some of their living space to volunteers have become my community. I often feel I'm on holiday or at a writer's retreat. The rhythm of swimming, praying, reading, writing, and thinking does my soul and body well. Though movement is restricted, I feel a sense of freedom. Just as I thought the gift of Jamaica might entirely be ripped from my hands with a forced evacuation, I was invited to discern whether to stay or go. I knew my answer almost immediately, heart and gut and soul. I was called to be here. Yes, called. My decision was about more than infection rate facts and a calculus about where I would be most safe or comfortable. Part of my decision was my observations about how the pandemic was being handled in the United States compared to Jamaica. Early on, the prime minister turned away cruise ships, closed schools and shut borders. As a much smaller country compared to the United States, Jamaica was able to implement a mandatory curfew as well as an executive order that masks must be worn outside at all times. If the rules are broken, citizens can get arrested, but it seems that a sense of social responsibility rather than fear is motivating the community to comply. As I hear of angry protests in the United States, I feel perplexed. Here, there is poverty and understandable grumbling about difficulty making ends meet. And yet, protests have not escalated to the point of violence. This makes me wonder about differences between Jamaican and American values. But violence is a serious issue in Jamaica. Recent volunteers have grieved the murders of Jamaicans they've come to know, and I will likely grieve similar losses. Something here is different. The register of unrest is not imported from the United States. It is uniquely Jamaican and it stirs the air differently from the unrest back home, as differently as the trade winds stir the heat on the island, but do not touch my hometown of Baltimore. As I wander the grounds, studying the names of local birds and trees and sitting in shady spots to read, I alternate between the book, A History of the Jamaican People and A Biography of St. Francis, so that when the world reopens and I can venture out again, I can greet Kingston not as a stranger, but as a friend I haven't seen in a while. The last line Megan shared with us about greeting Kingston once this is all over, not as a stranger, but as a friend I haven't seen in a while, is a theme I feel like we heard over and over from our call-ins. And it's a beautiful notion, this idea of a grand reunion and falling in love again with place and perhaps appreciating the smaller things in life that once before had gone unnoticed. Three of our callers shared the same sentiment. Though thousands of miles apart, Garima in California, Serena in Arizona, and Stephanie in Indiana found isolation to actually be a time of connection and slowing down, and seeing the world in front of them. Hi, this is Garima from California. Um, I wanted to share a little bit about my time in isolation during the pandemic. Um, this time has really been kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for my family to be together again um, since 
all of us are working from home. My brother and I are staying with our parents, and it's been about a decade since we've all been living together in the same house again. So that has really been incredible, um, and it's been an incredible time to spend time with family, to, you know, heal um, my mind and body and slow down for the first time in my life. Hi, this is Serene calling from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, this pandemic, obviously, has been very hard for everyone. Um, I have loved reconnecting with people who I haven't spoken to in a long time. I have loved, uh, you know, meeting new people online because that's kind of all we can do at this point and just making the best of everything that's hard. I'm a student, so I haven't seen my friends in a long time, but we're making it work, and I'm trying to look on the bright side. Hi, this is Stephanie from Muncie, Indiana. Uh, during the isolation period of the pandemic, I realized how much I enjoy a slower life at home, but it's also made me miss hugging my mom, going out with friends, and seeing my coworkers. So I think the pandemic has forced us all to take a look at what's important in life. Thanks. I, too, found isolation as a chance to reconnect with place and space. And as a writer, I decided to put my thoughts and feelings down on paper in an essay titled Love in the Time of COVID-19. Have our lives changed forever? I sure hope. The essay is about the slowing down and appreciation of home. After all, I haven't really left my home in five months, so I have to love it, right? In it, I write, our little mid-century ranch, with its limestone exterior and big-picture window, sits clustered together with other mid-century homes, tri-levels and A-frames, in a neighborhood that straddles the bustling city limits and acres of farmland that stretch out across rural Delaware County, Indiana. This proximity to civilization, yet freedom to get lost on a back road, is what drew my husband Corey and me to the house when we bought it in 2005. When our realtor walked us through, we whispered into each other's ears about backyard picnics and late-night escapades with glasses of wine. The real selling point, though, was that big-picture window in the front room and the way it scattered morning sunlight across the pine wood floors. In the essay, I go on to talk about the busyness of life and how, year after year, we got further and further away from the home we loved. It had only become a place to eat, sleep, and shower— in the last year or so, we started to look for a new home, but the pandemic made me realize that I have it all right here. I end the essay with, We'll get back to our commutes, our speaking engagements, our travel. This won't last forever, yet I'm already beginning to mourn the loss of this way of living. I hope future me says no more often to needless opportunities that fill our calendar, that I still call my mom and dad each day to talk about movies and the grocery store, and that Corey and I still tango our feet together in the evenings as we binge another show. Yesterday, we cooked dinner and made a picnic in our backyard. Corey shook a fleece blanket in the air and let it drift to the ground. I placed the food in the middle. We sat together, no one else in sight other than a few robins singing in our budding oak. After we ate, we held hands and took in the sounds of our neighborhood, Mowers buzzing in the distance, barking dogs, kids laughing. I opened my notebook to scribble a few words about the moment and saw something I had written last fall after visiting the Mediterranean. Though we may try to turn the tides of time in one direction or another, we must live in the now and learn from its lessons. I looked around at our fenced-in yard, our little mid-century ranch with its limestone exterior, at my husband. This life is enough. 
This piece was picked up by the Boston-based literary journal, Pandarus, and it will be released in their upcoming edition out this fall. My family, we've taken more hikes. We swam in the river near our house on Earth Day when it was 50 degrees. We got chickens. We grew the best garden we've ever had. Harper and Griffin, my kids, played together more. They've got an entire dance routine they do when Roses by St. John comes on the radio. But even in the happy moments, there's this ever-present hum of existential angst. How long will this go on? Sometimes that hum is a scream. A few weeks ago, I talked to my friend Betts, who lives in a retirement home. She's in her 90s. We share a birthday. She grew up with my grandfather. My dad worked at our local bank with her when he was in high school. She lost her husband when I was in junior high, and she'd take me out for jumbo shrimp and peppermint ice cream. She'd come to my basketball games. Betts hasn't been allowed to have visitors in months. I called her after my mom told me Betts was dying. Betts answered crying. Why is it that the closer you are to losing someone, the more you tell them how much you love them? Why wait? I told her how much my kids, wife, and I loved her. How much so many people loved her. We couldn't understand each other. We just cried. I couldn't hug her or hold her hand. She is loved by so many people, but can't be with those people. She thought she was going to die that day. She didn't. The nurses said that physically there was nothing wrong with her, but sometimes people can just will death. I think it was loneliness and fear of dying alone. She's still here, and I still can't go see her. There's been so much loss, and at this time of slowing down and reconnecting, that loss hums along. Loss of moments, loss of life, and loss of jobs. Here in our own hometown, the owner of the oldest LGBTQ bar in Indiana has struggled to stay in business while also thinking creatively about still providing a safe space for the community. I had to start thinking about what my life might look like without the Mark III taproom. The bar, as you know, has been a part of my life since I was a child. I grew up here. I was raised by a single gay man who was a regular patron of the Mark III taproom. It was the first bar he had ever gone in. On the one night a week, he would go out for karaoke, he would have the phone by the bar, and I could call and ask to speak to my daddy. He would go to the shows, and the queens would come to our house afterward. It was just always a part of my life. It was the first bar I ever went in as an adult. My dad and I were once a month regulars, and we would go out for the drag shows. And when the bar came up for sale eight years ago, the girl that was managing the bar at the time got a hold of me, I moved back to Muncie from Indianapolis and bought the bar and never looked back. The Mark, it's my family. It's my friend. It's been, it's everything. It's where we celebrate, where we mourn, where we gather. The community gives me a sense of fulfillment and something to fight for and to work for. And it's important as a creative outlet for our community. There's not a stage like this around for our entertainers. For our artists. What would we do without that place? You know, to me, that's how it feels. No one would have that outlet. For those babies that are just learning who they were and to wear their first pair of high heels and have nobody look at them in their costume and make them feel uncomfortable. It was a safe space for my dad. I've heard it a hundred times from customers. It's a place to feel safe and accepted. 
hardest part of the quarantine has been just that fear and the potential we might lose this magical place. The highlight of all of this for me really has been seeing the community rally around us. Our performers banded together to put on a digital benefit show and raised over $4,000 to help keep our doors open. Drag queens, comedians, and burlesque performers submitted filmed individual performances. A local company volunteered to compile the performances and air the show with a live host. That was a beautiful thing, to be both supported by my landlord and to be held up by my patrons. It gave me the energy to keep fighting for this magical place that we need to have in our community. And the struggle to create a safe space in an online environment is real. When you're LGBTQ, bars are more than just bars. They exist as a sort of home, a place to find others like you, a place to build family when blood relatives have kicked you out or disowned you. And for queer youth, this time has been especially challenging when their support groups have had to move online. If they are in an unsupportive home or not out yet to their families, Connecting with their local LGBTQ peers from the comfort of their couches with mom or dad peering over their shoulder is not so easy. Others like Shelly Berlin in Atlanta are literally alone during this time of isolation. Shelly lives in an apartment by herself and has sheltered in place for several months. Watching the outside world from her phone, Shelly had this to say. Hey, JR, this is Shelly in Atlanta and I am going to read you part of a poem I wrote the other day as a reaction to the isolation and other horrific conditions of living right now with the pandemic. So here it goes. Maybe we are all stuck semi-living in the cloud of some crazy future dystopic world. And as we sit here staring with glazed eyes into our cyber screens, and looking out through the windows of our protective isolation, we can only hope that today's awful world is already the path of a better future to come. So in the meantime, we keep hearing that for many, many among us, the life we previously knew and so quietly, desperately yearn for now, a life of meeting others in person, oh yes, even sharing food, touching hands, or hugging bodies, may be relegated to a much-missed and now seemingly mythical past and a who-knows-when or how-it-will-ever-come future. So that's it. I hope you're doing well. Take care. And in all of this pausing and stopping, some people, like Sue Godfrey, are starting. Hi, this is Sue Godfrey from Muncie, Indiana. And... I had the privilege of starting a new job just two weeks before the pandemic shutdown happened. And so I um, spent the shutdown trying to get to know my coworkers and understand my job, which was in a new um, an area outside of my expertise in the area. And so um, pandemic required um, a lot of work a lot of effort and a lot of meeting people who might only be a few miles away, but who um, I couldn't see face to face. And so um, it was definitely, definitely felt like climbing um, up a large hill to be able to be effective. Um, but I was grateful, so grateful to have a job and a good job um, during the pandemic when other people were facing layoffs and other things. 
So uh, the, co- the pandemic caused me to really be grateful, but also have to really put, apply a lot more effort than I think it normally would to make connections. Thank you. For many of us, the best way we can do something has been to socially distance from one another, which feels like doing nothing. Yet some, like Brian Preston, a county GIS technician, and Josh Arthur, a local pastor, have been able to pour themselves into their work. I work for the county government, so I've been working from home for the most part. It's been all right. We've been very fortunate that our income hasn't been interrupted in our main sort of source of um, livelihoods, you know, and I've been able to help uh, my office keep track of some of the emergency management um, operations, emergency management functions of government. Um, We have a website that's been the hub called the hub of the uh, county response and stuff. So we've been posting resources and things like that. So that's been kind of nice to be able to work directly at the big giant problem. (laughs) Um, And there's been a lot of mutual, it's just been great to kind of see like mutual aid neighborhood things going on, people delivering food um, to folks who aren't going to be getting out very often and, and things like that. I know Josh, and Josh's church are a big part of some of those uh, workings. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I've been fortunate, I guess, personally. Um, but it hasn't exactly been a happy time either. Both my kid, uh, my daughter goes to Central. My son goes to Burris, and they've got their little setup for homework in their rooms. They did. They did a really really good job for the first four, four and a half weeks. Um, Not that they're not doing a good job now, but they had a lot of energy and interest in it, in their work. And now they're just done. They're over it. Um, So, but they have a little bit more to plug away at. You know, church is closed. The Methodist church uh, right now, uh, they've done a great job um, in Indiana um, because we're basing that around health and safety. Um, not necessarily some certain notion of a economy, back to work, that sort of thing. Um, there's been a number of people who have given um, me and a couple other folks um, their their stimulus checks. Um, not wow. given them to me. I mean pass them along to me so that I would then pass them along in cash um, to to people who need it. I know one person um, passed uh, quite a bit of money along to family and wrote them a note that said um, they're so happy that they're in our community, that they're in the community, a part of the community. And uh, I've been able to to pass some money along um, in that way. So that that's been really cool. But uh, I have noticed that it, it's the, the folks that are already, um, have a very difficult life, like around the corner from me, um, a couple of people started living in a tent, um, down the street, there are two cars, um, where people are living 
uh, in their car. Um, and I've lived on, I've lived here for the 18 years in this house. Um, and we've had rough times, um, but not like that. Yeah, that's really tough. So I see, I see both people with resources that see the stimulus check as uh, not a huge impact to them, but knowing how much it would impact others, doing great things and passing it out. And then uh, see really troubling, troubling things like people sleeping in tents and cars. Matthew Fichter and Michael Broughton describe themselves as two guys in their 20s volunteering with Franciscan Mission Service in Washington, D.C. during a pandemic. Matthew and Michael shared their story with Kate Keeley. They work at a food pantry in the center of D.C. JR shares their story. Although we are not able to run our normal programming, the two of us have continued going in Monday through Friday every week to help with food distribution. If only we could record people's reactions when they realized that we're giving out free food. One woman came over and was completely shocked. She kept thanking us and took pictures, promising to share what we were doing with her friends. In fact, after getting her food, she walked down the street and told the first person she saw. Another woman in her 50s has been coming to the FMC food pantry for a while and has continued coming during the pandemic to receive food. Every time she comes, she gets so excited and says, what person over 50 do you know who could do this? And then she does a cartwheel. These moments make the work we do much more meaningful. Matthew and Michael miss family and friends and the old ways, but see themselves in a unique position in their lives to help. Right now, we are living in a time when most people are in need, so we want to help more than ever. Both of us being young and healthy with no underlying health conditions, we realize that we are in a position to help with less risk. So while a lot of the world is spending time in isolation, we have been blessed to go to work and help others. We have heard the voices of those struggling and have received immense appreciation for some very small acts. If there's something we've learned during all of this, it's that no one should feel shame right now. The other day, we heard someone saying that they've never needed food before in their whole life. They almost seemed embarrassed about it. Everyone in the world is experiencing some type of struggle right now. A lot of people cannot control the circumstances they are in. In some ways, it's kind of comforting to know that everyone is going through this. We're all in this together, even though we're separated. Before this, there was a lot of focus put on our differences, and sometimes it seemed like there were no similarities to be found. But maybe by sharing the similar experience, we will be able to meet others with more compassion. If everyone treated others with the same intentionality and care that they are during the pandemic, the world would be a better place. We want to thank all the listeners who contributed to today's episode. Voicemails from Garima Verma in Los Angeles, California, Serene in Phoenix, Arizona, Shelley Berlin in Atlanta, Georgia, and Stephanie Fisher and Sue Godfrey from Muncie, Indiana. Megan Hamilton from Kingston, Jamaica was played by Amy Leffingwell, with story by Megan Morrows and Megan Hamilton. Natasha Martz from Muncie, Indiana was played by Kim Gillenwater, with story by Tiffany Irk and Natasha Martz. 
And Matthew Fichter and Michael Broughton from Washington, D.C. were played by J.R. Jameson, with story by Kay Keeley, Matthew Fichter, and Michael Broughton. Josh Arthur and Brian Preston's stories were clipped from an interview on the Good People podcast with Kelsey Timmerman. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others with The Facing Project that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jameson. And until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Mm